the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 560, The Answer. Prepare to have your mind opened. The lies of the mainstream media are about to be exposed, and the hypocrisy of the left is about to be revealed. You've tuned into Black and Right. This is a revolution in how you think about politics, race, and culture. And leading that revolution are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. Good afternoon. Welcome to Black and Right with Charles and John. I'm Charles Love. John Anthony's off today. So I know you've been hearing several different voices over the last few weeks. Uh, John was the constant. We had some really cool and interesting guests in. But I am back. You're probably wondering where I was. We'll get into, get into a little bit of that and some other things. What I want to do today is what I t- try to do every week is talk about the culture talk about the dangers of the left, talk about where we're going as a country and where we need to be and um, use the news stories and interesting conversations and stories to tie all that together. So we're going to be talking about a few things there, but first I want to start off with the topic of where I've been, where I was for the last couple of weeks and finding a way to tie that into um, those uh topics that I like to talk about. So I was on vacation. As you know, I was off for two weeks. It was a vacation, uh, a family vacation, but not one that you normally uh, hear people talk about. We went uh, to Europe for two weeks and spent that time in the Czech Republic, Austria, and Hungary. You know, not your typical uh, European vacation, as they say. And as you can imagine, a lot of people say, well, Prague is so beautiful. It, it was a wonderful trip. It was a lot of beauty and a lot of history. Um, I want to start by, you know, on, the, on that piece, the beauty piece, and saying that we have to keep in mind as Americans, we don't usually think about this, but we're a young country. So there are places on the East Coast, in New York and Philadelphia, you know, St. Augustine, a few places where you'll find some buildings uh, from the 1700s, uh, uh, late, late, late 1700s, just a few, and obviously the, you know, occasional building from the um, 1600s. But here we're talking about visiting countries and cities that were established a thousand years ago and more. So you have a lot of buildings and things that are still freestanding from that time, which is amazing to see. And interesting to see how as these cities and countries modernized, how they were able to keep that uh, history intact and kind of weave some things in and around it. So you go and you see it and you're like, man, this is beautiful. You're looking at castles and you're looking at uh, old historic churches and it's beautiful. And you have to relish in the fact that in the 13th, 14th, 15th century, they didn't have the same technology they have today. It's like, wow, how'd they put this together? They didn't have power tools. I mean, this is really cool. But me being the conservative, I take a step back and I look at it in uh, other ways too, which I'll get to 
But the other piece was the historic piece. You know, like I said, these old places. I saw one of the oldest functioning firehouses that's still still in existence, still in use. It was built in the 1600s. The largest and oldest synagogue in Europe was there. And um, it was really cool. The last show I did, I want to reference that, though, when I was here in town, we did a show about America's greatness. So you may hear me talk about how wonderful these places were and say, see, this is antithetical to all that stuff you're talking about. See, these places are wonderful and great, too. But you're talking about aesthetics there. And one thing you notice, little subtle things uh, when you're there. So you travel through. And you get off the airplane and you get in a cab and you go to stores and restaurants and you find that all the music playing is a, is a American artist, right? So it's either current stuff, but most of the time it's stuff from the 80s and 90s. It's older music. Uh, everywhere you go, many of the people speak English. And uh, you, you feel those influences. You see all the businesses you're used to seeing here, you see there. But that's part of the thing. It's like, Regardless of what we have going on here, when you get there, everybody's like, man, we want to be like America. So a good example is I'm in Hungary talking to some people and I'm looking at these billboards and I'm seeing Patrick Dempsey and Bruce Willis went over there and they paid him millions of dollars to do an ad for an energy drink. And it's like, wow, well, where are your actors and your celebrities and all that kind of thing? And I was like, well, they all want to go to America. What you think of outside of soccer, because that's an international thing. So there's sports. They did focus on that. But you would never come to America. You wouldn't even think it would seem weird to you to walk through the streets of Chicago or Philadelphia and and see billboards of Hungarian actors or, you know, um, Australian sports stars and musicians. You just don't see that. So the effect and the influence we have is so great that we don't notice it on this end. But, you know, it's prominent there. But the other interesting piece is going back to the beauty. So you see these castles. There was a, a minute. Much of the stuff we saw was built by, obviously, the Holy Roman Emperor Empire, but much of it was the Habsburgs. So you see this tremendous buildings and all this wealth, and you have to sit back and wonder. As a conservative, I look at it and I say, "Well, who built this stuff? Where did this money come from?" Because today in our society, there's always this push against capitalism, and I wonder, well, if these people who you know, if we go back to the early 1900s and talk about the men who built America, your Andrew Carnegie's, your Cornelius Bennett's and your John Rockefeller's, and they talk about how they were vicious businessmen, you know, or you go to today, you talk about, you know, Tim Cook or Jeff Bezos and their their businesses and how they corner the market and how powerful they are. Elizabeth Warren talking about breaking them up, which we'll get to those debates in a moment. But you look at that and, you know, people want to vilify capitalism, but you have to say, okay, they're offering, whether you like them or not, they're offering products and services that people want and need, right? Whatever your thoughts of Apple being too big or being too dominant, people line up when they come out with a new phone. Whatever your thoughts are on Facebook, you know, a lot of conservatives say we're being um, shadow banned and they're, they're treating conservatives unfairly, but everybody has an account. When you think back, to this royalty, there was none of that. They didn't earn their keep. They didn't offer a product, a service that made people want to do this. They, by dictatorial fiat, decided, I want to build a castle. Get the people to build me a castle. We went to one place that was a massive castle. And it was built by the queen. And the queen had it built 
as a place that she was planning to vacation. It took 70 years to build it. And no one in the family ever set foot in it for a century. They had many places. We went to the Prague Castle, which was built in uh, 1050. Who built that, right? Where did the money come from to build that? We went to, if you go to Hungary in the Hungarian parliament, they took an old, you know, royal palace and made it the parliament. So the government is housed there now. But they have their crown jewels, so to speak, buried in a room in, in, in the, in the uh, palace, now parliament. Where did that money come from? So when you talk about capitalism being unfair and creating haves and have-nots, what capitalism did, there was always have and have-nots. What capitalism did was create a middle class because there was no middle class in the, in the 11th century. There was no middle class in the 1700s. There was no middle class. You know, everybody either was royalty or people who benefited from being around royalty or they were living in extreme poverty. So as I'm going through these countries and seeing this stuff, this is part of what I'm thinking about and what I'm seeing and what I'm questioning. Um, and then another thing, a lot of people ask me when I tell, come back and say where I went. And I say, oh, that's cool. What are the people like? They want to ask me if the people were nice. And they were. But I said, that's a kind of interesting question because you got to think when, when I went there, I stayed in a, you know, popular part of town. And then when I went out, I went out to, to see tourist attractions. So you're going to restaurants, you're going to the service industry, you're going to hotels. So you're going to places where people are being paid to be nice, right? You're not seeing the average person. You're not going out to the suburbs. It's, I liken it to Chicago with all its problems. But let's be real. Chicago is a world-class city. And when people come to Chicago from all over the world to visit, they don't go to Roseland or East Garfield Park. They don't get on the train and say, you know, and not just because those areas are poorer than downtown. They don't get on the train and say, let's go to Schaumburg, right? They go downtown. They go to the Beam. They go to the museums, which are some of the best in the world. They go to world-class restaurants, which we have many of. So you can come to Chicago and say, wow, this place is wonderful. You know, why are we hearing all these negative things about Chicago? So it's all relative. So the people were nice, but then the people are nice here if you're seeing the right people. So, and lastly, and most importantly, I want to get into communism because the other unique thing about the areas we went is that these were some of the last countries in Europe that broke away from communism. So what I want to do there is kind of spend a moment to talk about what that meant, how that affected the people there and the people I talked to, and how it's kind of a prelude to what we have going on here. You're listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer, and Facebook Live. Back in a moment. And now, more of Black and Right on AM560. Here are your hosts, John Anthony and Charles Love. Welcome back to Black and Right with Charles and John. I'm flying solo here. Um, had to run back in if you saw me, a little technical difficulty. The man, George, is on it, making things run smooth for me. Appreciate it. So where I left off was communism. Talking about my trip to uh, Europe, um, Czech Republic, Austria, and Hungary. So what I was saying is, 
these countries were some of the last countries. We think communism, we're thinking about, you know, Franco and Spain and um, Ceausescu and Hosha and Romania and all these places. And they leading up to World War II and then after World War II. And then these countries kind of falling away through the 50s and the Cold War and the 60s. But it was interesting because we were in countries that were holding with communism until Czech Republic, 1989. So, as recently as me in high school, they were still a communist country. Um, so things were a little different there. And in each city, we had a guide, a tour guide. So the woman in Prague was in her late 50s, early 60s. So it was interesting because she was old enough. She was an adult when it happened. So she lived through it, breathed it, remembered it. And so I didn't bring it, bring up anything political. I'm just seeing the sights. I'm a typical tourist, but I'm soaking it in. But as she's showing me these castles and talking about this wealth and going to these different places, it comes up. And because it's, you know, 2019, it's the 30 year anniversary of their freedom from socialists and uh, communists. So they were celebrations. They had banners all over the place. They had functions. Every museum had special exhibits. So they were really paying attention to this and making this a big thing. So I asked her about it. So we were at one of the palaces and I said, um, um, so what do the people here think about it? And of course we hate it. What was it like growing up under it? She talked about how bad it was. And I said, so what do you think about, obviously you get international news. So what do you think about those in America on the left that are pushing for, you know, something closer to that? They don't call it communism, but they're pushing for, uh, equality and, uh, socialism and everybody being treated the same. They want equity instead of equality. And she's, she was like indignant. She was like, she was upset about it. She said, it's crazy. She said, how can they, it's, it's, it's a different time. You have history of the internet. How can they know what happened and just be okay with that and not say anything and not, and, and try to, you know, push this going forward. And, um, so that was an interesting, um, narrative that she had to say about that. And she talked about how people, for years had to work for the government. They were assigned these jobs and they made no money. So they would create, they would learn a skill so they can make some additional money to support their family. And they will work this skill on the side. And that was the only way they could even eat by a life. But even though they did the day job was technically for free for the government, the night job was the money they got to keep, but the government still made sure they paid taxes on that money as well. So it was an interesting thing to see and um, get an experience from. We went to, uh, they have this wall called the John Lennon Wall. And it's just what it sounds like. When John Lennon was killed, the people met there mourning, you know, the loss of the Beatle. They painted a uh, painting of him and people would start putting messages on the wall. And the story she told me about that, which was interesting, is that this was in, you know, the early 80s, still the height of communism and restrictive government and things you could not do. And people were going there and they started turning it into a political, soft political uprising. So they started to make messages, negative messages about the government, messages about freedom, messages about what's going on in America. And the communists didn't like it. But what saved them and what it made it interesting is where the wall was and why they picked it. So when other countries had embassies there, they put them in the same area much strategically so 
they were up on this hill and they can look down and they can see what all these other diplomats are doing and kind of keep a check on them. So this wall was just outside the French and one other embassy, the American embassies around the corner, all the embassies there. So when they started doing that to the wall, the French would put a camera in the window. This is right at the beginning of CNN and international news. And the French would put a camera in the window and record what was going on and stream it out to the world. So the leaders wanted to stop this, but they couldn't just go and beat or be violent to the people because they knew it was being streamed. So that was the first kind of slither of freedom. But what the people did is they would go and take names and put spies in the crowd to find out who the people who were there. And then afterwards they made sure they were dealt with. But on the surface in front of the camera, all they did was every night they would clean up everything and they would paint the wall white and then somebody would paint it again. And to this day, that wall is still there. You can go up there now and there'll be something on the wall about, um, let's say Hong Kong. We support Hong Kong and the next day it'll be gone. Somebody will put something else up there. And when we were there, I have pictures of it. And there were some people like we support mainland China or you'd see comments about Trump or Erdogan or what else is going on in the world. It becomes this place you go to somebody's calling me while I'm on the show. Uh, it's a place where you go to kind of air your political grievances, so to speak, even now after communism, it's become a thing. So the way I tie all this whole trip to what we tend to talk about here, because coming up, we're going to talk about, spend some time on that debate and um, the things that those democratic candidates are promulgating. And the fact that those things are very similar, even though they try to package them, put a perfume scent, and a beautiful bow on it, it's really that same egalitarian, everybody's the same no matter what. So the last thing, so that was in um, Prague. When I got to Hungary, I had a guided tour, and she was the opposite. She was in her early 30s, late 20s, something like that. Yeah, she was almost 30. And we're going around, same thing. They got a house of terror, dedicated, a museum dedicated to the ills of communism. They have all these different things. They have... Uh, there's an interesting um, history on the Jewish quarter there that is definitely worth seeing. So she's guiding us, taking us around to see some things. And when we got to communism, I waited for her to bring it up and I asked her the same thing. But my question to her was uh, a little different and it was awesome. She put me in a place. It was in my place. It was funny. So I asked her, I'm like, well, you're young. You weren't alive doing communism. So I, my question is, what are they teaching the youth in school about it? And what are your think thoughts on it and your beliefs on it not living through it? Do you have negative or positive views about it or do you really know? And she said, well, one, they don't really teach us anything about it in school. They don't candy coat it, but they just kind of dance around. And it's not really an issue. She does guided tours, so she goes to the museums a lot and she's in school. So she knows about it and she knows about it through her parents, but they don't really teach it in school. But where I was schooled was the second piece. And what she said was, so to the piece about her not living through it and not knowing it, so what are her thoughts of it? She said, uh, really politely, but kind of smug. She said, Charles, um, do you think communism, I was born in 1990. Do you think communism ended in 89 and then the next year we were the U.S.? She said, no, we went through 10 years of pure hell, you know, and I had to live through that. Much of my early childhood was living through that. But then she talked a lot about the story she got from her parents and what they told her they went through and she had she personally without me bringing it up addressed the uh the equality thing she said the problem is everybody wants people to be treated fairly but 
we had a situation, we had a period here where a cleaning lady was making the same as a doctor. She says, so why would you be incentivized to do a doctor? You know, she talked about the only people who were still holding on to communism. There were only two small segments of the population. Those who were benefiting because they were close to the people in power. And the people who didn't want to work to get what they wanted. So they'd rather be down here and have just a little bit to skate by life. But at least they don't have to work for it. Then they have the possibility to get up here. But if they don't work, they could be down here. Those were the only two people. Then she told me a story about health care. She said, the one thing I do like about what we have here, our government here, is I like that we have government health care. I said, oh, that's interesting. She said, but I'll tell you, it's not the way that people think it is, I, what I hear people say in the U.S. And her example was, she said, so, you know, government, the health care is paid for here. It's paid for by the government. But I still see a private doctor when I can. And she said, I got a friend that needed to see a specialist around her age. And so she had gone a couple weeks before we were there. So September. Her appointment was in February. She said, I bet you don't have to wait that long. So she said, just common sense says, if capitalism makes it cost too much, we might need to tweak that. But the government controlling everything is obviously bad too. We need some common sense thing in the middle, but I think that the people that I listen to here in America are trying to go too far. So this is a 30-year-old Hungarian woman, non-political, that's just saying, just common sense says, you can't go with having the government take care of everything. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about those wonderful people here who want to do that, the Democrat candidates for president, why they're wrong, and how that communism can be a cautionary tale. You're listening to Black and Right, AM 560, The Answer, and on Facebook Live. Back in a moment. This is Black and Right on AM 560 with Charles Love and John Anthony. Welcome back to Black and Right with Charles and John. Charles here, flying solo. So, now it's time for you to participate. If you want to go, give us a call at 312-642-5600. I'd like to know either your take on my trip to uh, form a communist land and what your thoughts are about the, the things we talked about, the cautionary tale for where we're going with where I'm coming up with now. And now we're going to switch gears and talk about the Democrat debate. Now, I know the debate was on Tuesday, so many of you either already ignored it and threw it out of your mind, or you listened to some of your favorite talk show hosts after that, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, give their recap. So hopefully I'll have something different or more interesting to add, or if nothing else, this will give you an opportunity to call in. Uh, maybe you were busy during the week and you get to participate and we can have a dialogue about it again. 312-642-5600. Now, first, I want to talk about how my approach, I guess, will be a little bit different because I don't agree with um, any of the guys, people who are on that stage on Tuesday. But I don't want to just dismiss them all as crazy as if nothing that they say made sense because that was a little bit the problem is most of it was when some of them was pushing back against were pushing back against the others who weren't making the further left ones or they may be right about a problem and completely wrong with what we need to do with it but as conservatives i think instead of just saying dismissing them because one of these people are going to have a real legitimate shot of being president so instead of dismissing them just take them at their word dissect what they say and go from there and just have a True conversation. Basically, people with a microphone like me or people who talk to their friends and family, it doesn't matter. So use that time 
to gently and intelligently explain what these Democrat candidates are, what they're saying, what it really means. And the second thing, you'll notice that I'll be playing some clips and there's some uh, candidates I don't have any clips for. Well, some of the candidates are just not worth playing clips on. And two of the most interesting were Kamala Harris and Cory Booker. And I'm not calling them out because they're uh, colored or people of color or whatever name they use, black folk. But it was sad to, to see what they did. So Cory Booker, I think, was asked a question about like universal basic income or something. But it was so late into the debate when they got to him. He was like, thanks. First of all, I'm so glad you came to me. And I want to and while I'm here, I want to address what that person said about five questions ago and what that person said three questions ago. And so he was all over the place. So it was just sad. So there's nothing from him because he really didn't have anything outside of anger to add. Harris, I didn't put anything because she was just trying to. In a lesser way than Corey, kind of make a mark and say, look, I'm important. So she did one of her, her remarks was something about they came to her about a topic. And she's like, well, first, this is our sixth debate. And no one's saying anything about women's, you know, medical issues. And it's so important. I got to say that people are literally going to die, you know, and then the moderators had to say, you know, that's not what we're talking about now. Well, it's got to be said. And, you know, some of the people that, you know, the lemmings were like, yeah, yeah, that's good. But they really didn't have anything. They didn't stay on topic. They, they weren't presidential. They didn't have anything important to say. So what's the point? So now with the rest of them, there was some interesting uh, things, most of it bad, but still interesting. And I want to start with Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi because Tulsi's that sneaky leftist. So she's, you know, very poised. She remains professional and she's very calm under pressure. I give her that. And she's willing to push back against the other candidates like no one else on, on the stage is willing to do. So it makes her seem, you know, like one of the big boys. Yeah, yeah, dude, we need to take her seriously. And it's dangerous because I hear a lot of conservatives make the mistake of saying, yeah, you know, Tulsi Gabbard is the, is the one that we can take seriously. You know, she's the only one. Like if you ask the question, if you had to vote for a Democrat and you're, you're a right winger, who would you vote for? They all say Tulsi Gabbard. And I want to play my first clip here. And this will be a, a glaring reason why people say that. Right. So they started off, of course, they started the debate talking about impeachment asking them if they thought Trump should be um, impeached, if they thought that the Congress was being fair, why they thought that. And to a person, yes, he's the worst president ever. I agree with that guy. He's the worst president ever. He's the worst president in modern history. No, no, ever. And then they went to Tulsi Gabbard. And Tulsi had a different take. Let's listen if to impeachment one. is driven by these hyper-partisan interests, it will only further divide an already terribly divided country. Unfortunately, this is what we've already seen uh, play out as calls for impeachment really began shortly after Trump won his election. And, and as unhappy as that may make us as Democrats, he won that election in 2016. Okay. So <laughs> that one little sentence says a lot. First, you have to give her credit. She is the first of, of any Democrat house, radio, TV, singer, anybody to say he won that election. 
So she deserved credit for that. And I understand why conservatives do that. Secondly, and more importantly, she called out the fellow members of her party, not just the presidential candidates, and said that this is a hyperpartisan attack and is proven because the day he won, they were trying to impeach him. Now, what could he have done? He could be terrible. He could deserve, be, you could say that he deserves to be impeached. That's fine. And what her point is, even if I give you that, you couldn't have known that, right, on November 9th of 2016 or January 20th of 17. Yet, one person on that stage, Steyer, and Maxine Waters were constantly saying he's got to go. So her point is incredibly valid. And she's saying that continuing to do this is going to hurt the party. So that's the good. That's the plus. That's the reason why conservatives say, see, there's somebody with some common sense on the stage. But wait a minute. It's not the next clip, but remember this conversation because we'll come back to her. And then she's going to prove herself to be no different than the rest of them. So that was an impeachment piece. And it kind of turned Anderson Cooper wanted to ask Joe Biden about his son in the Ukraine. Now I'm going to play this clip both because of Biden and his really interesting response. So it's going to be two clips because uh, I'm going to have something to say about the first one first. But the first clip is important. It's the setup to Biden's response and it's Anderson Cooper's question. But it's important because think, keep in mind, this is one party's primary to pick somebody to challenge the other party dictate and find out who the people will elect to be the next president of the United States. This is the mainstream media who's supposed to be impartial. We want the, we want to give, ask the questions and push back against Trump and against these people to do the right thing and be fair to the American people. So to ask the questions, the American people want to know we're impartial. I don't have a dog in the fight. These people are saying, so listen closely to Anderson Cooper's question to Biden about Hunter, listen closely. Clip two. Vice President, President Trump has falsely accused your son of doing something wrong while serving on a company board in Ukraine. I want to point out there's no evidence of wrongdoing by either one of you. Stop it right there. So this is the impartial moderator for a Democrat debate saying, you know, the impeachment inquiry, inquiry before that, he says the impeachment inquiry is centered on President Trump's attempts to get political dirt from Ukraine on Vice President Biden and his son. And then he said that it's false. There's no evidence of wrongdoing. Trump's not telling the truth. He's lying. You did nothing wrong. I want to make sure everybody know that you did nothing wrong. Did you get that? Impartial. That is sad that nobody in the media called him out for that, either at CNN or anywhere else. That's not moderating. That's It sounded like the chair of the DNC asking the question. But then he followed it up with the question, and that's where Biden kind of gets into a pickle. Having said that, on Sunday, you announced that if you're president, no one in your family or associated with you will be involved in any foreign businesses. My question is, if it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? Vice President Biden? Look, uh, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I carried out the policy 
of the United States government in rooting out corruption in in Ukraine. And that's what we should be focusing on. And what I wanted to make a point about, and my, my son's statement speaks for itself. He's- okay. <clears throat> Semi-kudos to Anderson Cooper pushing back. So first he gave him a gift. Then he pretended to gently push him. But said, but wait a minute. How can you say that? But still, fair is fair. Anderson Cooper had a point. Mr. Vice President, you said that if you become president, nobody in your family will have an association with foreign businesses because that's not the right thing to do. So why is it right for you to do it? And his response was, my son did nothing wrong and we should be focusing on Trump. Oh, stop looking over here. And my son did nothing wrong. So these are the kind of pretzel twists that the Democrats did all night that I want to point out. So I don't, there are times when I'm going to go to the policy, but a lot of it is that if I give you, because if you read my book, We Want Equality, how the fight for equality gave way to preference. I talk about conservatives needing to give the left their argument. I know it's hard. I know we don't agree with them, but they don't know how to get themselves out of their their own quagmire. So you have to let them get themselves into it. So I say, okay, I give you your first argument. And then I watch them talk themselves into circles. And this is one of those examples. I did nothing wrong. My son did nothing wrong, but we should be talking about Trump. Don't focus on what I did, but if I win, I won't do the wrong thing. The thing that's not wrong that I did before that I won't do, but it gets better because he said at the end of that statement, my, my son's statement speaks for itself. What he's not telling you is that his son's statement was that I made a mistake and I showed poor judgment. Anderson, to fairness to him, did a follow-up and asked him about that. Listen to Biden's response. Mr. Vice President, as you said, your son Hunter today gave an interview, admitted that he made a mistake and showed poor judgment by serving on the, the, that board in Ukraine. Did you make a mistake by letting him? You were the point person on Ukraine at at the time, if you you can answer. Look, my son's statement speaks for itself. I did my job. I never discussed a single thing with my son about anything having to do with Ukraine. No one has indicated I have. We've always kept everything separate. Even when my son was the attorney general of the state of Delaware, we never discussed anything. So there'd be no potential conflict. My son made a judgment. I'm proud of the judgment he made. I'm proud of what he had to say. Here's the pretzel. I did nothing wrong, but if I'm president, I won't do the thing I didn't do wrong again. I stand by what my son said. My son said he made a mistake. I stand by him and I'm proud of the judgment he made. And I'm proud of what he said was was that he made a mistake, but I didn't make a mistake. I just say, keep this in mind when you hear people say Biden is moderate, professional. He knows his stuff because that was madness. Okay, but then we move on to Warren and financing. So after after they decided that he should be impeached and everybody's wrong in Ukraine, but Biden. They asked Warren about Medicare for all. She said we can pay for it. Pete, but I'm gay, said she never answers a question. I think the question was yes or no. Will taxes go up? And she said, went on where I've been to Puerto Rico and I met people. I like to eat pizza with two toppings on it. You know, everything but the answer to the question. So they said, uh, but I'm gay. You said that she won't answer the question. He said, see, she didn't answer the question today. Then they went to Sanders who said, yeah, taxes are going to have to go up. So then they went back to Warren and they said this. 
Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it, too? So the way I see this, it is about what kinds of costs middle class families are going to face. So let me be clear on this. Costs will go up for the wealthy. They will go up for big corporations. And for middle class families, they will go down. I will not sign a bill into law that does not lower costs for middle class families. Senator Warren, to be clear. You see, right there. I don't have to make anything up. This is their words. Just like Biden had the pretzel, we're going to call it the pretzel now. This is Warren's pretzel. Warren says, Medicare for all. Stop. I'm tired of people saying we can't afford it. We can afford it by taxing the rich. Are you going to raise taxes? First, she doesn't answer. When pushed, she said, I will not sign a bill that won't lower cost of middle class. Now, folks, you got to understand this middle class thing. Both sides plays this game. It's a word game. Because no one really knows what middle class is, but what the politicians do know is that most Americans, somewhere around 70, 80% of them, consider themselves middle class. You got a family of four making $300,000 a year. They say, I'm middle class. You got a family of three making $60,000 a year. They say they're middle class. So we don't even know who they're talking to. But the point is, there's no way she can fund this without raising taxes. And she keeps saying, not only is she doubled down, not only will I not raise taxes, I'm going to lower taxes. Is what she says, right? Um, so she's going to lower taxes on the middle class, which is everyone. I already mentioned that, but I'm gay pushed back and says she won't answer the question. Amy Klobuchar, this is her response to Warren's fuzzy math. The difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. And we can get this public option done. The difference, if you didn't catch that, between a plan and a pipe dream which is what she's calling what Warren was doing. A pipe dream. Biden got into the action and then he pushed back against her. And he said it's time to be important to be honest with the American people and admit this. Well, first of all, uh, the plan we're hearing discussed is the Biden plan. The one I put forward, build on Obamacare, add a public option. We can go into that. I can talk about that if you like. But here's the deal. On the single most important thing facing the American public, I think it's awfully important to be straightforward with them. The plan is going to cost at least $30 trillion over 10 years. That is more on a yearly basis than the entire federal budget. And we talk about how we're going to pay for it. The study recently came out showing that, in fact, it will reduce cost. But for people making between fifty dollars and $75,000 a year, their taxes are going to go up about $5,000. Because the fact is, they'll pay more in new taxes, 7.4% plus or 5% plus a 4% income tax. So, just to recap, we got Warren saying, I want Medicare for all. We can pay for it by just taxing the rich. We'll be able to pay for that. No, all this other stuff. We got her saying that taxes will go down on the middle class. Klobuchar saying that it's a pipe dream. Biden saying, yes, it's going to cost more than our entire debt, our entire current budget, just on her Medicare plan. And then Sanders saying that everything will be free. There'll be no cash out of pocket, no no copay, no nothing. Everything is free, even more than Warren. 
So I think half these people who are considered the top four or five have already eliminated themselves. You know, if you're being honest. Um, and then to throw a little bit of Sanders in. According to a recent study, about a quarter of American jobs could be lost to automation in just the next 10 years. Ohio is one of the states likely to be hardest hit. Senator Sanders, you say your federal jobs guarantee is part of the answer to the threat from automation. But tens of millions of Americans could end up losing their jobs. Are you promising that you will have a job for every single one of those Americans? Damn right we will. Damn right we will. I'm guaranteeing that every American will have a job. Government job, private job, high-paying job, low-paying job. Where is it going to come from? You're going to use tax dollars to do the, the, the FDR works plan redux? Just pay people to just stand in a corner with a shovel and spin it around? This makes no sense. And these people are serious contenders to be president of the United States. We are in trouble. This is not good. But Beto O'Rourke has a solution. They asked him, what are you doing to bring jobs back? This makes perfect sense. Beto O'Rourke. Congressman O'Rourke, same question for you. How would you convince GM to bring production back to the United States from Mexico? I've met with these members of the UAW who are striking outside of facilities in Cincinnati, in Lordstown, Ohio, which has just been devastated, decimated by GM and their malfeasance, uh, paying effectively zero in taxes last year. The people of Ohio investing tens of millions of dollars in the infrastructure around there. What they want is a shot. Um, and they want fairness in how we treat workers in this country, which they are not receiving today. Part of the way to do that is through our trade deals, making sure that if we trade with Mexico, Mexican workers are allowed to join unions. Did you hear that? I'll, if I did, if, if I could go back just 10 seconds, I would play again. He said part of the way, forget about all the fluff. He started off just talking about what has happened. We don't care about that. What he said was, how do you convince GM to bring jobs back to the U.S.? Part of the way to do that is to make sure that Mexican workers are allowed to join trade unions. Okay? Trade unions. Then on guns, I want to skip ahead because I'm going to tell you why in a minute. O'Rourke was asked about, first he said he was going to take guns back, back um, from people, but he said it's a mandatory, but it wouldn't be a mandatory buyback. Because what are you going to do if they don't buy back? He said, I just expect a, a fellow Americans to follow the law. I don't have this clip. The same way we expect everybody else to follow the law. So he said, so, okay, what does that mean? We don't go door to door to do anything else, and we won't go door to door to do this. We just expect people to follow the law. So you're going to have a mandatory buyback, but if nobody buys it back, nothing happens. So I think that madness alone eliminates O'Rourke. We've eliminated Biden. We've eliminated Warren. Harris and Booker and uh, Castro were jokes. We're running out of people here. So only one we got left then that all the conservatives are saying, at least in the middle, they're not conservative. At least they make sense. It's Gabbard. Remember Tulsi Gabbard said the wonderful thing about impeachment that you got to be fair. And this is a, a hyperpartisan uh, attack. Well, and to her credit, I give her one more positive. She did make a comment about abortion. I don't have the clip, but they asked her about Roe v. Wade. She said she wanted to protect Roe v. Wade. And she said, went on to say, I do, however, the only one of all of them, think that there should be some restrictions in place. I support codifying Roe v. Wade while making sure that during the third trimester, abortion is not an option 
unless the life or severe health consequences of a woman are at risk. That's a Democrat candidate. Give her credit. It may not be far enough for most conservatives, but she's leaps and bounds ahead every other candidate. But they asked her about the troop resolve. This is the the, uh, pretzel that they all got twisted up in. Because remember, the left blames all of Republicans and and conservatives of being warmongers. They all don't want the war. War is bad. But then when they asked them what they pull out, they said, no, because Trump pulled out. So we don't want the troops there, but we don't want to say we want them out because Trump said he wants them out. So we're opposite Trump. So how do we say opposite Trump, we want the troops pulled, but at the same time say we'll put the troops there. So some of them said, I would do do it, but I would do it a different way. I would put them back. Gabbard was the worst, surprisingly, on this. This is what she said. Congresswoman Gabbard, Last week, you said that American troops should get out of Syria now. You don't agree with how the president handled the withdrawal. What would you have done differently? How would you have pulled out troops without the bloodshed we're seeing now? Well, first of all, we've got to understand the reality of the situation there, which is that the slaughter of the Kurds being done by Turkey is yet another negative consequence of the regime change war that we've been waging in Syria. Donald Trump has the blood of the Kurds on his hand. So... She doesn't want the troops there. He pulls the tre- troops and he has blood on his hand. This is what the Democrats were saying. This was the wildest. You have to go back and listen to all of them. Every one of them to a person. Either it's bad. And I've been saying for years, I don't want the troops there, but he was wrong for pulling the troops to, I think I would just leave the troops there to arguments with Ga- uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard about whether the troops should be there or not. They didn't know where to go on this. It was amazing. Um, so those are your candidates for the most part. A bunch of people who say they won't raise taxes, but they want to double spending. People who say it's not okay that Trump is benefiting off of uh, the government, but their family is benefiting off the government. They want a mandatory buyback, but you don't have to sell the guns back. It's just all over the place. Basically, it's an attempt to make this country what the countries I visited the last two weeks fought and died to get away from. So think about that. As you listen to them, as as you ponder what you do with the Trump presidency going forward, uh, coming up, we're going to bring it local and talk about the teacher strike and other things. You're listening to Black and White, AM 560. The answer. Prepare to have your mind opened. The lies of the mainstream media are about to be exposed and the hypocrisy of the left is about to be revealed. You've tuned into Black and Right. This is a revolution in how you think about politics, race, and culture. And leading that revolution are your hosts, Charles Love and John Anthony. Welcome back. Hour two, Black and Right, AM 560, The Answer. Facebook Live at Black and Right and AM 560, The Answer. Um, so I, as you know, if you pay, stayed around the first hour that I'm flying solo, my partner John is not in today and he's probably having fun doing whatever he's doing. But now is the time that he's going to be like, man, now I wish I was at work today because his buddy is on. I have, I'm pleased to be joined by Brian Mullins from the Black Community Collaborative and Ado Chicago to talk about his interesting uh, time on Chicago tonight, uh, this past week, and uh, their big event in, was it Kentucky? Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, coming on on Black and Right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you again. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I was, um, I saw you on Chicago tonight talking about this teacher strike. 
And yep. um, I know that 10 minutes I've been on, and when you're on a four-person panel, you get what feels like seconds to talk. So <laughs> Exactly. Uh, give me a, uh, your take on the teacher's strike. What you, I, I know you're against it, but why you're against it, sure. what you think the problems sure. are, and uh, we can go from there. Sure. Well, uh, I definitely am against the teacher strike. I think that um, there are two problems, Chicago's teachers union and Chicago public schools. We have uh, we have watched for years the Democratic Party raid the financial coffers of uh, Chicago public schools by taking pension holidays, by getting bloated government, uh, bloated um CPS and the quality of education and our children's education has not been furthered. So as a, a black parent, you know, we sit back and we look at it from multiple angles. Uh, Chicago teachers union itself has even uh, it's 80 percent white and Hispanic, Charles. And from a labor standpoint, you know, we need sustainable jobs in our communities, right? We just don't need um, people coming into our neighborhoods and controlling the narratives and pushing things. So I think we have a problem on both sides, the public school system and the actual labor union that is pushing all these narratives um, in our community. So, you know, I think uh, the focus is not on the children. The focus is teachers, gentrification, and everything else that I'm, we're I'm, getting. I'm confused, Brian. Um, you, okay. you, you started to sound like you were making sense, but then you said the focus is not on the kids. But the teachers told me that the focus was on the kids. What do you, what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, now, granted, well, now, we don't actually, we won't actually get any of the things that we need, but hey, they said it. Sure. So that's all that really matters, right? Based on what history says in Chicago, <laughs> that as long as you say what people want to hear, reality has nothing Correct. to do with it. I say, I mean, you made some good points. One of the things that I say, sure. and we, we've sure. talked before, sure. obviously, uh-huh. is that you know, I look at it as another two things, but let's start with the thing you said, which makes sense. You said it's the teachers and the union, the two separate pieces. My thing is that right. I, I don't hear many people saying this, but I look at it like okay. think about any other business. You got McDonald's. Yeah. So you got the workers and you got the yeah. people who own McDonald's. Now they can sit at a right. table and they can argue about labor operations and conditions and I don't know which side wins, but it's fair. I'm the employee that's doing the job. You're the employer. Let's discuss. That's not what we have here, right? What we have is this vicious circle of teachers and employees of the school who work for the the, the CTU, right? But the CTU, like the teachers like uh, Janice Jackson, works for the mayor who's an elected official. Right. right? We we vote for these people. And then our tax dollars pay for it. Correct. But so in this well, sense, Charles, we're the, the employer and we're not at the table. Exactly. And that's one of the craziest things when you deal about labor and you deal with politics. We, the taxpayers, pay CPS, who pays the teachers, who then fund the union. And they're all sitting back fighting each other while the quality of education continues to fail our communities. Right. And, and that's the and other that's thing the you end, get credit for. You know, it le- leads to poverty that leads to crime that leads to all these social issues that they also want to solve. And we're saying, hey, some of the ways that um, sort of black community collaborative came together as a group of as a group of parents to sit back and say, hey, we want true solutions in our community. We don't want handouts. We don't want social services. We want sustainable wages. So 
you have an 80%, you know, 20% of the union is black, right? And we're saying, hey, we need some of those teacher spots back. Just so you know, Charles, if you don't, uh, your listeners, um, Chicago Teachers Union has sat back and allowed CPS to purge about 10,000 black teachers in the last 10 years. That was the black middle class, right? That also calls uh, the increase in property taxes due to pensions are causing foreclosures in our community. It's causing tax sales. So we're really under assault. And so we believe the way we get it back is we need to take part in labor at the end of the day, right? We want to earn sustainable wages to fix our communities. But you're not going to hear this narrative. The core caucus of Chicago Teachers Union is a socialist organization, right? So anyone can look it up. The caucus is the the, uh, rank-and-file educators is core, right? Chicago rank-and-file educators. They are a socialist group. Jesse Sharkey, the head of Chicago Teachers Union, is also the head of the International Socialist Organization, right? Now, on top of that, Charles, make it even funnier, but worse, his wife is the heir to the Royal Caribbean Cruise Line uh, fortune, right? So we sit up here, we have a one percenter trying to sit back and explain to us on what we need to do. So you don't have this coming out, of course. The teachers, I believe, the teachers just voted in Jesse Sharkey as president after Karen Lewis. Teachers are just as uninformed to what's going on as voters are at the end of the day, in my opinion, after watching all this stuff, right? So we really are watching the labor unions. And if you look at it nationwide, Labor unions nationwide are watching Chicago. The socialist organizations are sitting back saying, if they we can use social justice as a wedge issue, then we can go ahead and run socialist-based candidates on these issues where the appearance is you're trying to solve some problems or work with certain communities, but we know that's not true. Yeah, let, so, and let's go here. Yeah. You may, I want to go with one of the points you made and, a, and another sure. point I have. Yeah, what, I mean, we all talk about sure. this and we know it's important, but it's really key yep. to say things and point out things that other people don't say so they can see this. So the point you said... Exactly. You talked about mm-hmm. our failing schools. So I wonder why in this yeah. in this narrative, nobody's talking about how how the dropout rate is so high, about how they're passing exactly. kids through they can't read. So in a sense, you're talking exactly. about benefiting people and paying people and giving people stuff that aren't doing a good yep. job and want to exactly. not tie their, their job performance, unlike any other job, to the raises. Exactly. But the second piece that I like to point out is, they may be right because, you know, I talked earlier, I don't know if you heard, I talked about giving the left their argument. So they may be right. The schools yeah. may need sure. nurses, uh, guidance counselors, librarians and all these things. But I live right. in the real world. So what yeah. company can you work for and you go to your job? So I'm on this radio station. I work for AM 560. Yeah. So I come in uh, Wednesday. I was like, uh, you know what? I just decided that starting next Saturday, I'm only going to talk about golf balls for two hours. And right, they're like, well, we right, don't want to have a right. show that's about golf balls. Well, if you don't do golf balls, I'm a strike. Right? Exactly. So they, I can exactly. say that, but they could be like, well, we're going to replace you with somebody else. You see, what they're saying, is they yeah. may be right about the librarians, but there's a reason why sure. their contracts say they can only strike about money and benefits. Because Correct. who are you Correct. to dictate? We, we hire, we elected a mayor who, who yeah. hires until we have an elected school board in those administrative offices who hires and runs right. a, a man, an administration who manages the school. They dictate what right. the operations is. They dictate right. the class size, not the right. teachers. Now you might right. be right that the class size should be 18. Right. But if, if your boss right. says I want it to be 60, then you don't get to strike because it's not 18. Exactly. That's so, so no one's talking what- about that. And do we exactly. have the money? We can't have an $838 exactly. million dollar deficit and say, I want more exactly. money. 
You may be exactly. worth well, we $100,000, but if I only got 60, I can't give you 100. Exactly. You can stand on the street with a picket sign as long as you want. It's not going to make me print more money. So even if you're lucky and you get the mayor to give you the money, I live in the real world. I keep saying that. That money's coming exactly. from somewhere. Exactly. So you're going to lose the service points, here or you're going to get taxes there. Exactly. And those are all great points. And I and I, I, I piggyback on what you're saying. I think that's one of the critical things that people need to understand. The collective ask for what the teachers union are asking for is $2.5 billion, right? So we're already at a $900 million deficit. There is no way to generate that kind of revenue other than property taxes, right? right? And There's again, no we know that property taxes... Well, hey, cost, wait a minute. Know, Lori, Lori Lightfoot says she got the solution. She's going to triple or quadruple the tax on people... Taking ride share by themselves. Why not let all the single women yeah, ride around yeah. with creepy men to save a couple bucks? If if you go around and you look at these these ideas that, that the mayor has put forth so far, it's funny. Somebody did an analysis yesterday. It's only a hundred million dollars in revenue she's talking about. So the, the the ride sharing and all those taxes are not enough money to come close to the problem that we have, unless they go some massive, you know, some other routes. Which and let's be real. Help, let's look you know at I mean? look 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 so, at history. History dictates that every sure. time they say uh, a tax is going to create a revenue, one hundred percent of the time it's less it, revenue. Exactly. So even even though the hundred million is not enough, if they're saying it's a hundred million, it's really going to be sixty five million. Sure, exactly, and they and they and they can't. We can't allow them to bring these financial tricks to the table. She comes in now and she talks about um, the marijuana revenue, right? Well, you know, it hasn't even started yet, so it's not even going to be available for the 2020 budget period. So right. we can't be fooled by any of that. We've watched Rahm Emanuel use tricks, you know, and financial tricks and fuzzy math for decades, which is what got us into these problems. Um, I think you, I'm gonna definitely want to touch on one other thing you, you mentioned. Uh, so in in 2010, uh, so so there's been 200 thousand african-americans leaving the city of chicago seventy thousand chicago public school students right they have utilization plans all over 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 the city right um we know that black schools are the most unutilized real estate you know as far as schools inside of the, uh, of the community so we're not now, overcrowded is what <laughs> we don't have overcrowding right overcrowding is in different communities we don't have the overcrowding problems overcrowding are coming from hispanics due to influx of, of immigration and in white in white schools that are moving from the suburbs back into the city of chicago right so we're going to sit back and act like these days so the narrative from the teachers union because this is what they do if you notice they have black teachers and black students all over the TV, all at their press conferences, at every meeting they're talking about, right? But what, but what they're talking about isn't actually black, and that's part of the problem. They're using us and our kids as pawns in this whole conversation. That's true. But seventy thousand CPS students are gone out of the system. We need true solutions. Like, let's talk about consolidation. You have schools that have a hundred students in it, two hundred schools in these full school built for two thousand people. Right. Yeah, Don't exactly. forget the school that built the house see- 2000. Exactly, exactly. And I would rather see us take an honest approach to it and say, hey, maybe we need, we do need to consolidate some of these schools and create these mega schools that are full with nurses and aides right, and but full have the services, but operating have the at the correct capacity. Now, one of now, my fear, though, is that, and this is the truth, this is another thing we have to keep in mind. I'm not sure that CPS and CTU are not working hand in hand, right? In 2012, when Chicago teachers went on strike, what was the result? They closed 49 schools and purged 5,000 black middle-class teachers out of the system, right? And that makes me think like, man, so we also have to be cognizant and say, 
is this strike? What if Lori gives in? And then she's going to turn around and justify and say, well, you guys, I can't pay for it. Let's close another 50 schools in a black community. Let's fire another 5,000 black teachers to help pay for it. And what do we have left? That's not a win for us. So we got to talk about these things in realistic terms. So, and, and that's one yeah. thing I know you already know, but you, you, you're saying so sure. much you probably haven't popped in your head. So I'm going to toss you a ball. I'm yeah. a conservative. I'm, <laughs> look, I'm a conservative. I'm not supposed to be talking about sure. black all the time, but I live in the real world. Exactly. So Here's the other funny thing. Sure. So I drive around okay. after the strike and all these people on the, on the side with their little signs and banging their horns. Huck your horn. So I'm just taking pictures. It's yeah. a funny game you can play. Go around when you see them on strike in front of a school on the side. Take a pic, take pictures of them. Get back home. Create yep. a collage. And it looks like a, right. uh, and what you'll find <laughs> is that it looks like a yep. uh, Trump rally in Kansas. Where the black at people the at? The day, it's because what percentage? Well, I already are know no you know the answer. In- Tell me what percentage of the teacher union is black. Twenty <laughs> percent. So it used to be forty-six percent ten years ago. It's now twenty percent, which means we are we are the only ones being fired. White teachers and Hispanic teachers rates are continuing to climb. Right. So again, we understand that. Black, the black community is being purged out of the city of Chicago, right? The real estate is available. They, so they let crime fest, so they let education fail. And we're sitting back saying we just want to participate in what we call America, right? We need access to capital. We need sustainable wages, right? And, and we don't have it. So again, we got to keep putting these narratives out here and fight for, you know, what we need and what we deserve in our communities as well. Right. So in the last yep. few minutes here we have, I want to talk about uh, your other organization, put your other cap on. You hear him talk a lot okay. about what what black uh, the black community uh, needs. And Correct. I know the race thing is a big deal, but it's important. I'm a big fan of what you do because you okay. appreciate personal responsibility. You and your, and yeah. your group talks about what we're going to do ourselves in the black community, not what other people want to sit around right. and, and, do, and talk about right. handouts. In fact, you just said earlier, we're not waiting for a handout. Correct. And Correct. you understand that socialism and communism is bad for us. So I'm on your team. Correct. So you are Correct. a representative of Chicago's Eidos. Uh, tell people again yep. about Eidos from the last time you were here and about the convention, the sure. first convention you went to. Sure. Yep. Yep. So uh, Eidos stands for American Descendants of Slavery. It is a fed- on a federal level. There has been some movement. H.R. 40 is the main bill talking about federal reparations. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of twists coming from a government standpoint, some corporate responsibility. And we know that is a very heavy lift in America. Right. But I do appreciate the conversation and narrative that it's bringing up. So we, you know, kind of like we just talked about on the teacher side, we bring it down to equity on our side. We know that there are X amount of dollars being spent in, in government right now, uh, not in some set-aside scenario, but we're talking about in labor and contracts, right? And so ADOS, we, we watch here in Chicago the perfect example. Uh, two of the three largest general contractors in Chicago are Nigerian, right? So they're so not. Black. So that's so a they're separate. Black, right? so ADOS. ADOS, 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 no, well, black, black is, right, black is what the color that people call everybody from the whole, you know, if it's an African immigrant, if it's from Haiti or from Jamaica or you're black from Chicago, you're considered black, right? So what we're saying is when it comes down to, to, to the appropriation of resources, we, uh, ADOS, 
Americans are at the bottom of every statistical category, right? And so we have people coming from other countries that come into the middle, and they are the ones that are awarded with fake construction contracts. So they get their money, they live in Orland Park, they go back to Orland, there's zero benefit to the Eidos community on the south of the west side of Chicago. So we're saying we need to separate in this conversation, right? We need a different category, which we're calling Eidos, right? Eidos is a category, you know, I'm, I've, I've grown up in Chicago, my parents come from the south, right? When you talk to people, if you talk about immigrants from, from Nigeria or from Ghana, and you ask them, well, where, where are you from? Or, oh, I'm, I'm Ghanaian, oh, I'm Nigerian. We don't have anything thing to say, right? And so ADOS again, it's a it's a it's a question of lineage and that's gonna be worked out over time. How do you prove it and all that, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, it's not gonna be as difficult as it may sound. Um and there's gonna be a lot of twists and turns to it. So, you know, we want equity at the end of the at the end of the day. Reparations is a larger lift. I am for federal reparations, but I do understand what it's going to take to achieve that at some point in the country we call America. It's gonna be a heavy lift uh for these elected officials who are for it. Um, give you a quick example. So we had a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. About 2,000 people came from around the country. It was a great experience. Um, I think we definitely came together and they're working out how do we move forward, uh, you know, bringing data and systems and things to the table to help people organize locally um, that will, of course, you know, bring equity. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we do need a, a push, right? We need a boost in, in, in economics. But we really need, if you can go ahead and make, you know, 100,000 people making $80,000, $90,000 a year, our communities change on their own. It's not about handouts or anything. I mean, we know between, you know, we could have another conversation between corporate handouts or social handouts, you know what I mean, and all these other kind of things. We just want to play in this game in a fair and equitable way. And in Illinois, the Democratic Party has been the worst one. They control every city, every government. We just watched today. I'm going to post it on social media earlier. They have a census effort, right? So J.B. Pritzker put $20 million on the street for the census effort, right? Now, keep in mind, you can't you're not a census taker, right? That's a federal move. It's just to, to, to talk about the census and encourage people to get in. What if I told you out of all the organizations, 37 organizations and $20 million, not one of them are black, right? You got about $6 million going to the Refugee and Immigrant Association to push their numbers in the census and none of ours. But guess who voted for J.B. Prisker? Black voters. 365,000 black voters voted for J.B. Prisker. And this is the kind of conversation um, that we got to keep having. But I got to throw this out here. Um, we don't have Republican candidates to vote for, Charles. So I think uh, we could uh, get some uh, Republicans, the President Party, to get it together and give us some choices that we may be able to move our voters. You know what I mean? Um, the biggest reason, in my opinion, why we only vote Democrat, because we have zero choices in the game. That was right? my history. We can't, I, can't, I can't vote for anybody in Cook County or Illinois that is a Republican because my district is, is blue. We don't have challenges. My state rep, my state senator, county board president, county commissioner, they are not even Republicans don't even run candidates. Hey. So you can't turn around and say, oh, you black folks only vote Democratic. Well, hey, we need the party to come educate us, try to bring us out to the polls, explain to us why we should vote for a Republican candidate. But, you know, it's funny, Charles, I'm out here every day talking the same kind of stuff. I would bet my life that their black voters are ready to move away from that Democratic plantation if we had a choice oh, and that's there what was I some write money about all the time. and some resources 
put into it. Right, yeah. that's what I write about yeah. and speak about all the time. But the problem is, is the Republican. Sure. You're 100 percent right about the Republican Party not doing enough. Sure. But then they they don't yeah. understand black people, and there's not enough around them. That they, and the ones of us who are around Correct. them don't they don't listen to. So what they'll say is, exactly. yeah, we can run somebody, but. Right. They need to be a right. Democrat light or the black people won't like them. They think you need to be the, right. the, the antithesis no. of Trump in order to run. Well, actually, right. what you need Correct. to be is Trump without being a jerk. Correct. But you need, Correct. But you need, to, be you right able to, you need we, to be bold. You can't be like, well, I, I'm just like J.B., Correct. only I don't want all sure. your money. I only no, want some of your money. No. In that case, I vote for J.B. Gerald, Charles, we're watching Illinois. We're watching the federal government come in. I don't care if you're talking about the tollway to the Chicago Housing Authority to 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 contractors and elected officials. They're all all around the Speaker of the House, which is Democratic, right? So all this stuff is going on uh, at the same time right here. We welcome this. We know that we can never get anywhere as long as this Democratic machine that has been, you know, messing up the black community for the last 40 years is still in place. So we welcome Donald Trump's feds to come in and continue to, I look at it as a help. Wait, yeah, I'm cheering them on. Yeah, yeah, get, them, get all of them. Let me, let me put this out. I don't know how much time or how much uh, space we got left, sure. but uh, I think it'll sure. be interesting. I don't know. You don't listen to the station that often, but it's obviously a conservative sure. station, really pro-Trump. Sure. And they do this sure. annual summit. They're doing the Freedom Summit. Summit. So they got all the conservative okay. heavy hitters, you know, Sean Hannity, Sudashin Gork, and all those people sure. coming out. Sure. So John sure. and I, uh, well, I'm doing a, we're doing a, a breakout at this event, right? So we're going to oh, talk okay. about the black vote. I think you and okay. many of these people out there that I know, I, I speak to some of them, I do events, and I know they're out there, should come sure. and kind of see sure. what happens on the conservative sure. side. So I'm, I'm like the person in the middle trying to build a bridge between the two. Exactly. So they don't agree with you yeah. on everything. I don't agree with you on everything. But I say we sure. agree. We talk sure. enough. I agree with you about 85% of the time. I don't agree with most Republicans sure. 85% of the time. So exactly. I'm supposed to argue with you exactly. over reparations? I said, but we exactly. agree on Charles, everything I tell else. People all the time. <laughs> but we agree on I talk everything to people else. All the time. Right. And we sit, we sit back and we see we've watched the Democratic Party help help to destroy and create situations in these urban areas across the city. We don't look at Donald Trump himself as a problem after two and a half years in office. He didn't create all these issues in our communities. And to be honest, I believe through helping us in the Democratic Party situation, he's going to by default help us anyway. Right. right? Well, he wants and I think to there are a lot of black people that are coming out. We're not scared to say it and look for something different. I mean, hey, we are in critical times. Not only in this country, but definitely in our communities, definitely in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. And it's time for us to step up and put it all on the table. And I believe that a lot of black people will. Um, don't forget, we've been Republican before. Right. Um, but now it's a different mindset. We need jobs and resources well, see, and access one to capital of the things, to create Brian, businesses. One of the things that's yep. going to help him if, if Trump could quit shooting himself in the foot. Is this? Yes, exactly. Is that well, when that, he ran? The, but wait, wait. I know it's a big hip. It's a big hip. But yeah, look, if, when yeah, he ran, yeah, yeah. everybody said this was going to happen. What helps him if he thinks about it? The sky was going to fall. So all you really got to yep. do is two things. It's yep. real simple. We're all overcomplicating it. Step back and say, yep. listen to the people on the left that I talked about in the last hour, and. I know yep. you hate me. You say I'm dangerous. Yep. But when I ran, you said yep. the sky was going to fall. This is two and a half years exactly. later. Did the sky fall? Exactly. Are you broke? Exactly. Are you making exactly. less money? Is the economy worse? Then shut up and get on board this train. And where I'm wrong, help me fix it. So exactly. what I want you to try exactly. to do, I'll have to, I have to check with the sure. station, see how many tickets we got left. It's November sure. 2nd. Okay. Try to bring okay. a contingent 
of those groups. I don't want to keep dropping names. Sure. You know who I'm talking about. But bring yeah, them out yeah, to the summit people. so they can see Definitely. and hear what we do and what yes. true conservative is because it's not necessarily Trump, but it's definitely not the Correct. Illinois GOP. Correct. Well, th- we, I'm open to that, Charles. I appreciate it. Well, thanks Definitely. for your time. And see how much it is when you get okay. 30 minutes by yourself instead of 15 with, two, exactly. with four people? Exactly. Much better. <laughs> well, that was, that was <laughs> exactly. Brian Mullins from the Chicago Collective on AM560, The Answer. Back in a moment. Back to Black and Right with John Anthony and Charles Love on AM560, The Answer. Welcome back to Black and Right, AM560, The Answer, Black and Right on Facebook Live. So earlier, I was talking to Brian Mullins about the teacher strike, and we talked about where the money would come from, why they're striking, um, what's in it for minority students. But uh, it was mostly the fiscal and the operational aspect. But my next guest wants to talk about it from a, different perspective. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by Latasha Fields. She is the founder of Christian Home Educators Support System and co-founder and overseer of Our Report Ministries and Publications. Latasha, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Charles. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. So I know you are the authority on homeschool schooling and all things education. So when I reached out to you and say, hey, you want to come on and talk about... uh, the uh, teacher strike, and uh, uh, needless to say, you were a bit fiery. So, um, why don't you uh, fill the listeners into your uh, your thoughts? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when you originally texted me uh, and you abbreviated CTU, honestly, th- this morning I had no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, and from that, uh, I, I text you that, like, what is CTU? And so I was, I was prompted by the spirit to, um, immediately begin to just brainstorm my thoughts in terms of, um, the LGBT curriculum that, that's happening, not just in Illinois, but in a couple other states, especially what the parents are experiencing in California. Mm-hmm. And so as I'm, I'm taking my notes and I'm just, I'm just praying to God and I'm just typing all these things down. Um, I go on Facebook, and so immediately in my news feed, somebody's talking about the, the teacher strike. So I'm reading the notes, and then I see the abbreviation CTU. So I say, oh, that's what he was talking about, <laughs> the Chicago's teachers union. And, and so I, I responded back to you that I figured out what it was. Um, but as you stated, I, I am coming from a different perspective on the other aisle, if you will. Um, my heart is to pose a few questions to the teachers in, in the city of Chicago and the parents primarily, which of course most of our teachers are parents, um, from a more of a Christian perspective and a pro-parental rights stand. And so as, as we look at uh, the teachers striking the, the last two days, my, my first question then will be, where was the strike or the petition or even the voices raised publicly when Governor Pritzker passed the LGBT uh, mandate to begin to teach such perverse indoctrination to our children? Where was that protest? Mm-hmm. Because for me, I'm a teacher. I'm, I'm a home educator. I've been teaching my children for 13 years, and I have a school. I teach other kids as well. And so that's why my position is mainly for the Christians, the secular uh, groups, organizations, the, the world, the devil's going to do what he do. 
but the Christians, as a teacher and you're a believer of God, your first priority is the souls of children, not the ABCs and the one, two, threes. So my question will be, my second question will be, is the protesting for the children's soul, is that a priority? Right. Should parents protest their right to opt their children out of such perverse teaching? Would the teachers even support the parents? Would the parents support the teachers? Would you support each other? Would your protest ha- have a right to, do you protest to stop having a right to teach such abominable indoctrination to children? Do you as teachers feel you have a right to do it? Do you feel you have a right to expose other people's children to such perverse teachings? Hmm. And you do according to the law, because first Corinthians, I'm talking to Christians, first Corinthians six and 12, which there's many scriptures says all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but not, but I would not be brought under the power of any. Would you support parental rights? in terms of not the overrooting and the demonically indoctrination of molesting children's minds and soul by government and school officials. Would you support that? Would you support or is your fight? You want new books. Do you not understand that this LGBT history is going to be in the new books? Is that what you want? Is this the type of education we want for our children? Is this not going against the word of God, your values and your beliefs? Is this not worth fighting for as well? And what do you think they'll say to some of those questions? I'm sorry. I said, what do you think they'll say to some of those questions? Or have you posed them to any of the teachers? I would love to hear from them. (laughs) Yeah, I would love to hear from many of them because then my question would be, is, is the academic achievement as a Christian, is that more important than the souls of these children? And then when you stand before the Lord, Chicago public teacher and Chicago public parent, when you stand before the Lord one day, what are you going to tell him? It was my job. It was my career to teach against you. Will you stand before him with the innocent blood of these children on your hands because you partook in such blasphemy? Is that what you're going to tell the Lord? Or will you stand before him blameless, only stained with your blood because you was persecuted? For righteousness. Who do you seek to please? The teachers union or God? Those are the questions I have for the Christian public teachers mm-hmm. and the Christian parents. Now, I would say, I would guess and say, well, maybe they'll just say, well, I get what you're saying, but operationally, it's not for me to say. I mean, my, my management, they put all the rules in place, but then that would go out the window because they're literally striking to get more teachers and I mean, more nurses, smaller classrooms and all these other operational things. So if they can strike on the one hand about operations, they should be able to strike about the curriculum. But what would you say to those who say, well, I think if you want to talk morality and morals. I think it's moral to strike to have these certain staff levels. I think it's immoral to have a school where there's only a part-time nurse, a school where there's library but no librarians. What would you say to those teachers? I was saying you're absolutely right, but this is what the Lord dealt with me this morning. If you're going to fight for the way to your matters, you got to put priorities first because evil prevails on all sides. Injustice is on all sides. But the Bible speaks on this wise. We must measure the weight of our circumstance and our issues that affects the righteousness of God first, not what fits in the parameter of the world view. 
Because see, if what God is showing me and what I see through the word of God, that the plumb line that God is speaking about and the attacks that are coming is first and foremost against him. So you have to begin to measure and weigh your priorities in life. It's not that you should not fight for the nurses and the libraries and the books and all these things, but you have to weigh the weight of your matter. And again, I say the weight of your matters are the souls of the children. It is not pleasing to God to just only publicly, if that's how you're going to fight, if you're going to publicly fight, if you're going to swing and publicly fight against the injustices that are happening on an academic level, well, you have to even more so fight as a believer for the injustices that's happening to their souls. Right. So it's not about not fighting for those things. That's fine. I don't have anything to do with that. Fight for those things. But when he passed the law in early August, where was your picketing then? Where was your picketing and your justice that children should not be exposed to such such perverted teaching? We have to put the plumb line of our faith in order. Righteousness proceeds all things if you're going to say you're a believer. If you're a Christian, that means, of course, there's many forms of Christianity, unfortunately. But if you're going to be a Bible-believing Christian, well, that means you're a disciple of Christ. And that means your first priority is to operate in the mind of God, being not conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is the acceptable will of God. And teaching is a gift from God. And God is never sanctioning children to be indoctrinated with dogma. He's never okay with that. So if you got to be persecuted for righteous sake, well, that's what needs to happen. Then. Wow. Well, you, well you, you, you started off the segment talking about the law, but also talking about L.A., and we know they have some uh, some crazy things there. My good friend uh, Sonia Schmidt is working on uh, pushing back against that stuff in uh, California as well, which is why we're putting together something for education. So from a larger standpoint, um, biblical worldview versus the secular worldview, worldview, how do we, you know, kind of go up against this thing because it's such a, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, how it's an onslaught and it's everywhere. So you got this thing with Pritzker and the thing in L.A., Illinois, I mean, in L.A., but you got, uh, you know, in Texas, you got libraries that have drag mm-hmm. queens coming to read children's books mm-hmm. to kids. You have, you know, this big push, uh, 2020 celebrating nine-year-old uh, drag queens and things of that nature. We're pushing the end of uh, gender. Obama threatened to take e- education money from public schools if they did not have uh, transgender w- b- uh, bathrooms in the schools. So this is a bigger movement, obviously, than just Pr- Pritzker. So what do you think, where do we go, those Christians that do want to push back against it? What do you think that uh, the avenue to do that should be? Well, I think at, at this point, because we're in the end times, I think the, the reformation of the public school system is, is a dead carcass at this point. And so I, I believe what conservatives and Christians need to do, the church needs to wake up first and foremost. Parents and the church simultaneously need to wake up. And to me, the only real solution is for us to take our children out by the droves. And you can't just, you know, you have many advocates to take them out, take them out, but then where are they going to take them, Charles? Where are they going to take them? And so the church needs to get in position, get in a biblical position, and stop worshiping men in places and see to the real need. They need to see what God sees. And God loves family. And God cares about these children. I care about these children. You know, it, it breaks my heart that so many of us that say we love God and that we believe on God's word, you know, sit back in whatever capacity, because I know there's so many things going on. And we, we're sitting back and 
seeing what the enemy is doing to our children. So many parents feel helpless that they can't do anything. Where are they going to send their children? Because I'm a firm believer. Children need to be educated. God is a believer of that. We ought to diligently teach our children. Children need to be literate. They need to understand mathematical and all these concepts. That is Bible. See, we call it education in our new age terms, but God call it wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. There's many examples in the Bible where children were homeschooled and they were taught, that diligently taught the things of God, taught math, etc. So we, we understand that our children need to be structured and taught, but parents need to have a right to choose these things. So if we can't pull them out by the droves, what needs to be done, then, then legislators and parents and, and teachers and everybody needs to be aware of, watch these people that you put in office, these elective officials, demand that parents have rights to these things. If you want to teach this in the school system, teach it. Go ahead. Teach it if you want to teach it. But give parents the right to opt their children out of such perverse teaching. Right. Because so, school should not be should not be about uh, you know, distorting God's order, you know, gender neutrality. That that is not what education is. Homosexuality is a belief system, Charles. That's a whole nother religion. And at the end of the day, those people have a right to believe whatever they want. That's their belief. If they believe there's something other than what they, their biological sex states to them, that's, that's them. That's you. That's fine. And I have my belief. I believe God made a male and female. So that's a belief system. And that should not be imposed on anybody else. Mm-hmm. So that's why parents should have a right. They have a right to opt their children out, especially talking about kindergarten. Why mm-hmm. should they be exposed to those? I don't people? even know how that would come up in kindergarten, to be honest. Regardless of your views on it, how does that come up, right? It's, it's, it's amazing. So basically what you're saying is that the focus should be on maintaining your rights, regardless of what you believe. When you give the government that much control, you're losing your rights. So the parental control goes to all the rights. You need to maintain your rights, and you need to be aware so you can hold your legislators accountable, correct? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what, you know, I was listening to Mullins and, you know, I've talked to him several times. I mean, we got to understand our, the political climate has a lot to do with the issues and policies that we all see the ill wills from. You know, this, this wickedness that we're seeing, you know, this whole thing of hating Trump, just the whole proliferal things that we're seeing, we have to really take a real voter education and understand that we need to really look at our political system, and many of us are. But that's, that, that stuff is rolling down. So from a biblical perspective, what would you call the political system? We call that principality. Mm-hmm. That's what we call it, spiritual wickedness in high places. The Bible teaches us this as Christians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against these principalities. So we get talking about government and we throw all these new age words around. God is saying principality. That's what the problem is. And until we can deal with that and see that, then we're never going to uh, iron these things out. Right. And then secondly, establishing parental rights from a political perspective, the churches must get in position, not in position where you go rent a building and you have people gathering to come for you to preach to on Sunday. I'm not talking about that crap. OK, because a building is not the church of God. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The actual human beings need to be fed the word of God. Mm-hmm. You can meet under a tree. It doesn't matter. The church needs to get in they position. Need to get involved. Say God called you. They need to get involved and position. That's what I mean. They need to get involved and understand that if God has blessed you with real estate and you have the capacity to house and to do this, then you need to reach out to somebody and find out how can you help the congregation? How can you help members? I've been, I've been saved over 16 years. I have seen countless situations in time. People go to 
Church, Sunday and Wednesday, you pray for the children. You lay hands on and you turn right back around and send them into those demonic institutions. Children are in public education over 15,000 hours, and they're getting two to three hours of church on Sunday. And that's if their parents are really saved and teaching them anything. Right. These children are not being rooted in biblical principles. And again, I say, church is not the place. It's not the geographical location that we drive to. The church is the body of Christ. We gather in particular places, and God is okay with that. We can gather anywhere, but we need to put our focus back on, back on mankind. These families need help, Charles. Right. These hey, children are in danger. Latasha, Latasha Field, uh, chess up. Uh, in the last minute here, so can you tell us more about, you know, tell the people about your your school, your um, homeschooling piece, what you do, and uh, how they can get involved? Yeah, so I have a school. It's called Kaijigu Christian Academy. We've been running the, the private school for 12 years, but I've been homeschooling 13 years. So Chess Up is Christian Home Education Support System. And so that's where, that's our organization where we help and advocate and facilitate other parents in terms of being their support system in terms of to start homeschooling their children. So I got them through whatever the legal ramifications is in dropping their children from the public school, which in Illinois is, is, is very flexible. It's, it's a no-brainer here, you know, in spite of the, the political climate. And so just walking them through that, introducing them to curriculum, and we meet every Wednesday, and we just have all kinds of tons of classes for our children that we teach. And so the school, I have 10 students total. And so, you know, we run a private school in my home, in my basement, you know, and I teach an accredited Christian curriculum. And so what I'm talking now, what I say now, I live and breathe it. And so we have uh, parental meetings every month where I meet the parents. I keep them abreast as much as I can on what's happening legally. Mm -hmm. But our first and foremost obligation is making sure that we're accountable to the word of God when it pertains to our children. Because we want our children literate. We want them successful. We want them to prosper. But more importantly, we want them to be rooted in the faith of Jesus Christ. Last seconds here. Why don't you give the people your website and uh, information so if they wanted to contact you, they can? Yes, definitely. The website is www.chessup.org, and you can email me at info at chessup.org, and you can call me, 773-814-6843. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks for coming on in short notice. That is Latasha Fields, founder of Christian Home Educators Support Systems, Chess Up. Thank you for joining us here on AM560, The Answer. Thank you. Appreciate you. So that was two different ways we looked at the edu- educational piece in this uh, strike. One from the operational standpoint, one from a biblical standpoint. All of it says that there's a problem. So, you know, that was the point here today. You know, I started off, if you didn't catch the first hour, talking about my trip to uh, uh, former communist uh, Europe and how the people there yearned to be free, rose up against it, had a kind of peaceful break. They didn't have a... All of the things that Hong Kong is dealing with now, but um, nevertheless, thirty years later, they are celebrating the fact that they have moved further and further away from it. What I didn't realize until I went there, so we took a train from each city. So when we took the train from the Czech Republic to Austria, when you hit that country, you know there's no stop, but you can look out the window and see the difference, right? You see the the, the difference in the landscape, the call, the size of the homes, and things of that nature. And it turned out that Austria quietly had the uh, second largest uh, economy in Europe. And a lot of that has to do with the successful move away from communism. So I led with that because it's important to know that as they 
are celebrating 30 years of being away from that and how freedom and capitalism and um, democracy has lifted them up. We, the, the beacon of freedom around the world, are being pushed in the opposite direction. You know, we have people in political office, you know, your AOC, your Maxine Waters, the squad and others, and people running for the highest office who are saying the only way to make this semi between semi okay to horrible country, depending on which one you talk to, to make it better or in Trump's terms to truly make it great again, we need to move to a more egalitarian kind of government. So even if, again, back to my premise of giving them their argument, even if you believe that's the way we should go, equality is good. Let's make this equality happen. I understand and I write about how human nature says you'll never get it. But even if that's your goal, the problem is who gets to dictate what the equality is? Who gets to say when it's fair and when it's not fair? Right? So to some, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, for example, if I take from people who are wealthy and give that money to someone else, I'm making things more equal. But that guy doesn't think it's equal. Right? When I have a school that is successful in a landscape of Chicago with many failing schools and only a few people can get into that school, how are you going to get equality? If you got five successful schools and 10 failing schools, every student can't get in those five schools, right? So most would say the solution should be to improve the other 10 schools. But what they really say is, no, we need to just, we only got five good schools. We can't do anything about the other 10 they lost. What we can do to make equality is to take some of the white kids out of the school and bring some black and brown kids into school to even out the ratio. That's what, isn't that what Bill de Blasio's doing in New York? Right? They had these elite schools where your admission was based solely on your academics, how well you perform. And they decided, he decided there weren't enough black and brown students, so something needed to be done. But he didn't tell anybody that the majority of the students weren't white, they were Chinese. But it didn't matter. We needed black and brown students, so let's kick out the Chinese students to make room for, for the black and brown students. So when they protested, they said, all right, fine. I do have control of the operations of the school, so my solution is going to be the school will no longer use academics as the main requirement for admission. But forget about whether you think it's right or wrong and it, and it evens the mix. Won't that inevitably, after a certain amount of time, bring down the quality of the school? Because before, the school had the elite of the elite in the city, no matter where they came from. All of the smartest kids came, gravitated to these schools and made it strong, made it a rock. Now you're going to chip away at that in the interest of different colors in the hallway. So we want, and I want, my black students to, to achieve, but I want to do it by helping them get better, not by bringing down the level of everyone who's doing well. So that's what we need to focus on. That's what this show was about, about how the Democrats care about people. I assume positive intent, but their efforts to fix things and make things better is only bringing everybody down. My term for that is negative equality. Let's not make every bring everybody else up. Let's just bring the people up here down to their level. Then everybody's equal. Everybody's just poorly equal. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to Black and Right on AM560, The Answer. And I will see you and talk to you again next week.